we've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Uh, we're continuing in Daniel today. Uh, before we jump into that, I want to start with this question. Um, ha- have you ever uh, been nervous about a test that you weren't sure you were going to pass? You ever been, and we all have, right? Every, yeah, yeah. I probably have one tomorrow morning, right? Come on. Uh, I was thinking about one of those tests in life that many of us, maybe all of us face, that just made me so nervous. And that was when I had to go to the DMV for my driver's test. Do y'all, do y'all remember this? I mean, I was just wrecked. Now, in California, where I lived when I was 16, you, you actually had to parallel park to pass. I, I'm told North Carolina doesn't require this anymore. Did you know that? Like, we're a wussy state. We don't even have to parallel park anymore. What's up with that? Well, in California, you had to parallel park. And the other thing you had to do is you had to get on the freeway uh, at full speed and, and then ch- cross over 17 lanes to the left. And then 17 lanes back. If you survived that, they just gave you your license. They figured you, you're, you're all right. Uh, you know, so such a nerve-wracking thing. I was actually reading about this this week. You might not know this, but as many as half the people who go to take the driving portion of the driver's test, as many as half of them do not pass the first time. Did you know that? Some of you are feeling better about yourself right now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. How, how many, none, this is no shame. How, how many of y'all passed the first time? Just kind of own it, kind of, okay, and then I won't make any bail story, but the rest of you, right, you, you know this. Now, here's what's so interesting about this test. Here's what's really interesting. They actually found that the smarter you are, the more likely you were to fail the first time. Did you know that? So some of y'all aren't feeling so good about shooting your hands up now, are you? Actually, what they found, this true true story, they, they interviewed or they surveyed uh, 1,500 people. And what they found is the higher your GPA, like the more A's you got, the more times you were had to go back to get your test. So if you, if you got all A's in like art and music and literature, on average, you have to go 1.9 times to get your test, to pass it. If you get A's in math, and science and that kind of stuff, you actually have to go 2.3 times. So you engineers, you must be like the worst drivers in the world. I don't know. Uh, so so here's, here's kind of the big lesson. If you are on your 30th or 32nd time to go try to pass the test, you're probably the smartest person in all of North Carolina. So just feel, feel good about yourself. I, I was thinking, I was so nervous, I forgot to mention this when I went. Um, both my parents worked, and so on my 16th birthday... My dad said, why don't you just drive yourself to the DMV? So I did. I did. I mean, I did. <laughs> Apparently, you don't have to have a parent there to get your driver's license in California. Who, who knew? But yeah, okay. Story for another time. Well, we are in a series on the book of Daniel. Oh, no, no, I need to come back. I see I got so fired up. We face tests all the time, don't we? All the time. Tests at work, tests at school, tests at the gym. Uh, and, uh, but what do we do when we face tests in our spiritual lives? What about those tests in life that are meant to measure our character or our faith or even our love? How are we to handle those kinds of tests? We all face tests of all kinds in life. And today we're going to see a group of folks that face a test when it comes to their faith. We are in a series on the book of Daniel. Daniel is a guy who lived 600 years before Jesus. Uh, we read all about his story in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, here's a little bit of background I want you to know. We introduced Daniel last week. Uh, if you miss that, you can always go back and listen online. Uh, you don't have to. I'm going to try and catch up to speed. Daniel was a part of the young class of nobles in Jerusalem. Uh, he, he was part of the kind of the honors 
student, you might say, in Jerusalem, the capital of God's people. Now, all things were going well. Daniel was uh, super good-looking. He was super intelligent, physically fit. I mean, this guy was cream of the crop. And everything was going up and up and up until one day when a giant nation to the east, the nation, the empire, actually, of Babylon, came and conquered Jerusalem. Now, we talked about this last week, but what happened is the king, uh, the, the evil king of this, this empire, took all the people from that city back to be slaves in his own court. It would kind of be like if Russia was to invade the U.S., sack Charlotte, and take you and your children back to Moscow, like Stalin was going to take you back and make you a slave in his court. Get a feel. That was kind of Daniel's story. Now, somehow, in the midst of all of this, Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they don't simply survive in Babylon. As we read, they actually seem to thrive there. So what was their secret? What did they know about thriving in Babylon that might have something to teach us? That's what we're looking at in this series. Now, last week, we saw how the king had a plan. He was going to brainwash these guys by getting them to study the religion uh, and, and literature of the Babylonians and to begin eating the foods of the Babylonians. That was kind of his, his plan, but it did not work so well. Well, he actually even tried to rename them, give them Babylonian names. In fact, you might know these three guys from their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names, The Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Heard of those guys? Well, these guys aren't buying it. They don't eat the food that the king's serving. And they form a little boy band with Daniel as their leader. You can kind of think of this as NSYNC. Daniel is their Justin Timberlake. Got a feel for that? Some of y'all went to see Timberlake this last week, right? Yeah. All you who went, we're all 40 or older, aren't we? I mean, we're just, that's just, that's just true of us if we're going to see Timberlake. Here we go. All right, so... They resist, and God vindicates them. And not only that, but they actually get promoted and put in charge of some of the king's provinces. We're going to see that in just a minute. So chapters 1 and 2 are about Daniel's test. But now today we come to chapter 3, and today is not about Daniel. It's about the rest of the boy band. It's about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are going to find themselves in a hot mess But it may just be the most important test of their lives. Let's jump into the story. Chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to crank through a lot today. It'll all be on the screens. You can follow along in the Bibles on the chairs if you like, or even on your phone if you have a Bible there. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read this to you. King Nebuchadnezzar... Oh, I didn't know if y'all were going to remember. Okay, so some of y'all were here. Did you hear the hisses? Those were the first service people last week because they hissed. This service was the Boers. You can do whatever you want. But my, my, my old youth pastor said, anytime we say the name of the evil King Nebuchadnezzar, we've got a Boer hit. So here we go. Let's try this again. King Nebuchadnezzar, beautiful, made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So all of those guys and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. What's happening here? Well, we're we're starting to get the stage set, right? The first thing the author wants us to notice is that everyone, and I mean 
everyone is present for the dedication of this statue. It's kind of like when the school principal calls for an all-school assembly, right? And the teachers come, the students, the coaches, the janitors, the guidance counselors, the PTA moms, and that super powerful woman who holds the walkie-talkie at carpool line. Like she's there, like everybody's there, right? And they're all in the room. And this includes Daniel and the boys because they have been promoted again, remember, to middle managers in the king's court. They are actually in charge of a province. Now, here's where it picks up. Everybody's there, and suddenly the announcement is going to come in the next verse. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of all languages, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, Zither, that's an old Hebrew synthesizer. Lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Da-da-da. The stage is set. What's happening? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the known world. Again, think Stalin, think Hitler, right? And the only thing bigger than this statue is his ego. This statue is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That's taller than this gymnasium, just to get a feel for that, right? And, uh, and not only is it honking huge, this statue is made of what? Gold. What? This is going to matter profoundly in just a minute, so hold on to that. The author wants us to see that there's a connection between this gold and the fiery furnace. What's the connection? Well, this is an extreme scenario for anyone in the ancient world or today. Imagine if your boss dragged you in, right? And he said, hey, listen, I'm going to play. Whenever you hear the Rocky theme played over the speakers, you've got to fall down and you've got to worship me, your boss, right? And to top it off, he's got a big statue of himself there. Right? Now, we all get we all get it. We know the boss's ego has to be flattered every now and then, right? Well, we all, we all know we have to tell her she looks a little bit better than she actually does, right? We, I mean, this is kind of how the world works. But this is absurd. Because if they don't, you know what the boss says? If you don't, you're going to get fired. That was good. That one was it. That was worth the price of admission. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, have a problem with this. Do you know what their problem is? Why can't they just go with the flow? Like, why make waves in this? Well, because their God gave them a command that stands in direct opposition to the command that the king has just given them. In fact, the command that God gave them is found in Exodus chapter 20. It's actually part of God's Big Ten commandments. Listen to how it's written there. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. And here it is. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Pretty plain and simple, right? There's no wiggle room on this one. This is not the tax code. You can't pretend there's a little outlet here. There is no doubt. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they decide to follow their conviction and not conformity. We talked about that last week. And they refuse to bow down. Well, it's not long before some of their co-workers, some of their jealous co-workers catch wind of what's happening. These guys, the astrologers, they're like, hey, 
Did you see those Hebrews over there? Man, they're not bowing down. Dude, this is our chance. And so they do exactly what jealous co-workers always do. They ratted them out. Look with me at the very next verse, verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. See the flattery there? Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the hort, flume, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty, They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. What's this all about? Interesting little side note. It's kind of a little nerdy thing. Uh, But in the Hebrew and Aramaic languages, those are the ancient languages of God's people, the ancient languages of God's scriptures. And the word that they would have used for serve and the word for worship was actually the same word. The word literally means to bow down, to cower before. To worship someone is to acknowledge that they have the power. To worship someone is to acknowledge that they have ultimate authority over you. So look at the next verse. What happens? Well, the king finds out that these guys are not bowing down, and he becomes furious with rage. Verse 13 literally says the king grew hot with anger. Here's our gold furnace story advancing. You see, something big is about to happen. So the king drags Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into court and in front of everyone. He sets them up for a test. He asks them this. He says, is it true that you won't bow down and worship my statue? I'm going to give you one more chance. Doesn't that sound like the language of a bully? I was thinking, for some reason, it always reminds me, you remember little bunny foo-foo? I'll give you three more chances. I don't know why my brain always goes there. Anyway, back to the story, back to the story. That's not helpful. I'm going to give you one more chance, King says, but if you don't bow down, if you don't worship me, you are going in that furnace right there, and what God will be able to to save you then? What God will be powerful enough to rescue you? Who will save you from my hand, he says? Who will save you from my power? Do you feel the weightiness of this test? It's the biggest test they have ever faced. Their faith is literally on trial, and the whole empire is watching to see how they're going to respond. We'll look at how they reply in the very next verse. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know this, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Interesting. I'm going to stop there for a little while. 
Because we love to rush to the end of this story. We love to get to the furnace and kind of, well, I won't spoil the ending for you, but we love to get there. But I actually believe that this moment, this very verse, is what the entire chapter 3 hangs on. All of chapter 3 has been building to this moment, to this testing of their faith. And that's what I want to look at with you today. As I've been reading chapter 3, I keep coming back to this question. Okay, I, I know that our faith is tested, but why? Why does our faith need to be tested? Why did God need to test the faith of Daniel? Why did he need to test the faith of the boy band? Why does he need to test your and my faith? Well, I want to give us three reasons, and then we'll come back to the end of the story. The first reason God needs to test faith is that testing reveals the true nature of our faith. Testing reveals the true nature of our faith. When I was younger, actually when I was 19, uh, I worked at Starbucks in Pasadena, California, and I had a buddy there, and he had the sweetest ride I had ever been in at that point in my life. It was a a 1980 Porsche uh, 911. Y'all remember what these looked like, right? And not only was it not, it, it was red and it was a convertible. I mean, this thing was hot, right? So, so one day I asked him, I said, hey, listen, I, you know, we're, we're friends, right? We're, we're but hey, hey, can I take your car for a ride? And he, he said, well, if, so long as I can go with you. He, I, he said, sure. So one day after we got off work at Starbucks, we went out, got in his car and we pulled out of the parking lot and onto, get this, this is, this is just a true story, onto California Boulevard. The street in Pasadena. So I'm driving on California Boulevard in a convertible red Porsche. I mean, this is this is just my moment, you know. And so we come up. We I hadn't gone much more than five miles per hour, and we come up to this stoplight, right right next to the Starbucks. And this boulevard is is like a boulevard here, two lanes in each direction. So when I come up to the stoplight, right next to me is this old minivan with a soccer mom driving. And you kind of know where this story is going already, right? So I'm I'm sitting here next to them, like. Man, I'm going to leave this woman in the dust. I'm going to. So I, I turned to the guy and I said, hey, listen, can, can, can I just gun it? Like, can, can I really go for it? I don't know what sports car talk is. Open this thing up or something. Who knows? Whatever the value is. And so he says, well, sure. So, so I'm sitting there. And so I put my hand on the stick and I've got my foot on the pedal. And, and then it, it's almost like I'm living the pole position video game. Anybody old enough to remember pole position? Right. Beep, beep. And then it turns green. I'm, I'm waiting for that moment. And it turns green. And man, I slammed that pedal down, and here's what happened. Went and I rolled across the intersection about 10 miles per hour, while the mom in the minivan left me in the dust, right? <laughs> what my friend had failed to tell me was that this was not a real Porsche. It was a Porsche 911 body with a VW Beetle engine in it. <laughs> True story. I don't know what it was. They made a couple thousand of these and they sold them. Some of y'all may know about this. And they sold them to guys who wanted to look cool but couldn't afford to drive cool. Do you know what I'm talking about? And boy, did I look like a bozo. My buddy was just busted. He was just cracking up. It was so, so funny. See, the funny thing about that Porsche is it was a counterfeit, right? You know what a counterfeit I mean, it looked good on the outside, right? It had the Porsche body, it, had the, it even had the name, it even had the little, little sticker with the horsies on it, you know, the, or did horsies, no, that's Ferraris, whatever, whatever Porsches have, yeah, it had, it had that, it's, but under the hood, it was anything but real, it was a fake, it was counterfeit, and this is the problem in the spiritual realm sometimes for us too, the same thing can happen to our faith, 
We don't always know what we have under the hood because counterfeit faith looks an awful lot like genuine faith on the outside. Both can wear the same label. Both can have the same moral code. Both can spout the same theology. At first glance, there's no difference. But when it comes to being tested, when it is tried, a genuine faith will always prove true while a counterfeit faith will always fail. I love how one writer summarized this. He said, Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what they're made of until you put them in hot water. And isn't that just true? You see, we don't really know what we have under the hood, what we have under the hood of our faith until our faith is tested. There's no way to really know without a test. Now, why why would this be dangerous? Why would it be dangerous for you or me to live with a counterfeit faith believing that we have the real deal? Well, the reason this is so dangerous, so hazardous, is because then when real trial comes, when real difficulty comes, counterfeit faith will not cut the cheese. It, It will not sustain us. It doesn't actually have any value. Imagine next week when it snows. I know y'all were thinking it was going to snow this week. No, don't worry. It's coming next week. Right? So next week, imagine when it snows. Uh, I'm going to go, like all y'all, I'm going to go to Food Lion. Right? I'm going to go and get my, that's right, my wine and Doritos. That's what I'm getting. That, that's right. Yeah. Because I'm Californian. Y'all buy the milk and bread. I don't get that. But I, I get the real essentials, real essentials. No, I'm going to go to Food Lion. I'm going to buy milk and bread. But imagine if I got up to the cash register and instead of pulling out my wallet, what if I pulled out a giant wad of Monopoly $500 bills? They're, they're not letting me out of there with my nachos and wine. There's no way. It does not matter how many $500 Monopoly bills I throw down in front of that cashier. They're not letting me buy it. Why? Because those bills have no value. And it's the same with counterfeit faith. And this is why it's so dangerous It simply can't be relied on. And that, my friend, is why our faith needs to be tested. Like when I hung the swing in my backyard. Dads, remember when you hang the swing? right? Who's the first person who has to sit in the swing before you let the kids in? Right, Mom. That's right, Mom. Mom goes through. Mom always sits in there. I'm not putting the kids in there until it's been tested, right? What kind of parents are you? We've got to test this thing out. And it's the same with our faith. The testing of our faith reveals the true nature of our faith. That's simply what it does. But who is this test for? Who is it that doesn't know the real nature of our faith? Well, it's us, of course, right? God's not fooled. God already knows whether our faith is genuine or or not. The test is not for God. The test is for you and for me. The test is actually an act of grace because God's helping us to get an honest look in the mirror about where our true faith lies. The first reason our faith is tested is because testing of our faith reveals its true nature. If your faith is being tested right now, what are you discovering about the nature of your faith? What are you learning about what's under the hood? The second thing we, uh, second reason our faith needs to be tested is this. Testing reveals a true nature, but testing also strengthens our faith. Listen to how James, the brother of Jesus, described it. Talk about trials. Can you imagine having Jesus as a brother? 
All right, here we go. Here's James. Here's, here's what he writes. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the what? Testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Isn't that interesting? James seems to be saying that testing is not simply to reveal But the testing has a purpose. Testing's purpose is to produce something of value and good in us. It's meant to teach us what endurance and patience and fortitude actually looks like. It produces that in us. God doesn't simply want us to use our, excuse me, God doesn't simply want to use our trials to help us see the true nature of our faith. He wants to use them to grow and strengthen our faith too. And this is actually what I think this whole subplot that I've been alluding to between the gold and the furnace, I think that's what that illustration is all about. Let me see if I can show you this. I don't know how much you have studied uh, the smolting of high-value metals. I'm sure you've all read a lot on this. I did a little bit of research this week, and I found the authoritative source on the subject is actually a book written in Latin many, many, many centuries ago called De Re Metallica, which is proof that they liked heavy metal back in the Roman days. But here, here's the... That, that's bad. That's bad. But listen, this, is, this blew my mind. This is... You, this, this blew my mind. When this book talks about smolting, that's heating metals to their melting point, right? Burning them. When, when it talks about smelting metals, you know the verb it actually uses? It says it's perfecting metals. To smolt metals is to perfect metals. It is to burn off the impurities and the contaminants that don't belong there. When you perfect metal, when you smolt metal, you purify it so that when it cools, it is stronger. Now, what does this have to do with our story today? Well, hang, hang with me. Let me see if I can show this. this. I just think this is so cool. The average fire temperature, like the fire you make in your backyard, is about 600 degrees. So guess how hot you have to heat gold to get it to smolt, to perfect? That's right, 1,945 degrees. You all read, read the Metallica book, right? Okay, so, so that's three and a half times hotter than your normal fire is how hot you have to get for gold. Now, we didn't read this, but guess how hot the fire is that Nebuchadnezzar heats for throwing the boy band in. Seven times hotter. Now, watch watch this. Here's what I, I think what I'm getting at here. Nebuchadnezzar thought that this gold statue represented the greatest strength, the greatest power the world had ever known. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't recognize it, he throws them in the furnace, assuming it's going to destroy them. But instead, what is revealed in the furnace is a God who is greater than the king, greater than the statue, and faith that is purer and stronger than even gold. Do you see what the author is getting at here? Now, Aaron... Are you saying that these difficulties that come in my life, my suffering and all that, that that God has caused those things to happen? No, 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 no. I don't believe scripture teaches that. And if that's a question that you wrestle with, I hope you'll be with us in uh, the third week of February. We're going to tackle that very question. But what I do believe and what I think James is getting at here is that God will use every trial, every challenge, every heartbreak, every difficulty in our life for good if we will let him. Every test 
can produce stronger faith if we will trust him in the process. Now, Aaron, what if I failed? What if God's given me the tests, but I haven't been faithful? Does that mean I'm voted off the island? No, 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 no. This has nothing to do with salvation. Remember, we, we are forgiven. We are rescued. We are redeemed simply by the grace of Jesus. That's it. But God is committed to growing and strengthening our faith even more than we are committed to it. That's why Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, he says, I'm confident of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you will complete it. God is committed to growing and strengthening our faith. And so what might God be doing in your life right now through the fiery furnace you're facing today? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Well, there's one more thing that testing teaches us, and that is this. Number three, testing teaches us to trust in God's faithfulness, not in the outcome. You know what's amazing about the book of Daniel? I mean, there's just some incredible stories in this book, aren't there? I mean, some of the best stories of faith in the entire catalog of salvation history. I mean, it is remarkable. But there's this one verse this week that has just got, it, got its hook in me that I have not been able to let go of. And it's found in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to the king. Remember, he gives them that one last chance. He says, hey guys, this is it. And if you don't, then you're toast or barbecue or whatever your preferred metaphor is. And then they say to him, King, we, we, we can't do this. Uh, and besides, our God is able to save us. He, he, he's mightier than you. But then they say this next phrase that has just has not let go of me. Look at what they say here. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your, majesty, your majesty's hand. But even if he does not. Even if he does not. We will not serve your gods. I, I'm in a grad school program right now. And I had to do a really interesting exercise. I, I had to sit down this week and write a spiritual autobiography. Have you ever done something like this? Really cool exercise. If you're interested, I'd love to share share it with you. But you kind of reflect over the whole of your life and, and see how how God has been shaping you and growing you over the years. And and I sat down and I did that exercise this week, this week, while studying this passage. And I was confronted with this question. I said, to Aaron, do you have an even if he doesn't kind of faith? Or, or is your faith an only if he does kind of faith? Do you know the difference? Is my faith a kind of faith where, God, I, I am willing to trust you even, even if it doesn't go the way I desire? Even if the outcome isn't what I hoped for? Even if they turn against me? Even if they speak ill of me? Even if I lose things that matter to me? God, I am yet willing to trust you even if you don't. I'm willing to trust your faithfulness and trust your goodness, not trusting the outcome. And i got to tell you, it's, it's been a real challenge for me. 
have a friend who I spoke with a couple months ago who uh, is no longer living, and he was facing a terminal illness, and I remember sitting with him and just marveling at his faith. They, they were still praying and praying and treatment after treatment, and everyone was trying to hold out hope, and then he just came to a place where he said, Aaron, I, I'm trusting God even if this doesn't go the way I hope it to. And it didn't. And I've been so struck by that kind of faith. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you lived with an even-if-he-doesn't kind of faith? I think Jesus modeled this for us uh, in those final moments of his earthly life. He was in the garden the day before he was crucified. And you might know this story. But he was in agony. I mean, this was not what Jesus wanted. And there's this moment where he's talking with the Father, and he, he says, Father, if there is any way that this cup of death can pass from me, w- would you let it be so? But even if it doesn't, yet I will trust your will. That's what an even if it doesn't kind of faith looks like. And I believe, I believe it's the kind of faith we're called to, and I believe it's the kind of faith God wants to grow in our Westlake community. So where in your life might you need to trust in God's goodness and faithfulness, even if the outcome doesn't go the way you had hoped? Ben, you guys can come on up. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute, but I want to give you a chance just to reflect. Where do you see yourself in this story today? As we were talking through these things, where, where is God testing you, testing your faith? What might he want to produce or grow in you in this season? Or what would it look like for you to trust him? Not for the outcome, but because he's good, he's kind, he's gracious, loving, and faithful. You know, the end of the story is really good. Some of you will know this. Uh, Eventually, the king throws the, the boy band into the furnace, right? And you know they're a boy band because I think they're dancing in there, right? They're just, they're having a good time, right? But they're in there, and it's so amazing because the soldiers who throw them in actually get burned up. That's how hot the furnace is. But, but these three guys are untouched, and there's this moment in the text, I'm not going to read it, but there's this moment where the king looks in, and instead of seeing three guys in there, he sees a fourth. Something that the king says looks like the son of a god. See, the truth is that God does some of his very best work when the heat is at its highest. But he never abandons us in that time. Whatever fiery trials you're facing, whatever difficulties, this story confirms and you can be confident that God will walk with you through that trial. He will help your faith to prove true and he will strengthen that faith in you if you will let him. Can we pray? Father, today we we just come and we try to receive this challenge from you, God. This is not an easy message. Lord, we would much rather have our trials pass us by. But Lord, we don't want to waste a testing. We don't want to miss what it is that you have for us. So would you help us to recognize your invitation today? Would you help us to trust you? 
Would you comfort those who need your comfort in the midst of difficulty? And God, would you grow in us a genuine faith that will last? We make this prayer to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.